forward on my knees. I walk forward on my knees. I walk forward on my knees. Welcome to Walking Forward, the podcast of the Edmiston Center, where we highlight Christian life, thinking, and practice on the margins of the world's societies. On this episode, we're going to turn to global human rights, even as our center students are preparing for this fall course, Christian View of Human Rights, where we study the theological foundations for human dignity and then apply them to situations around the world and throughout history. So as we are prepping for our coursework, I've invited Knox Thames to join us for this episode for two decades. Knox Thames has promoted the rights of religious minorities, advanced international religious freedom, and combated persecution, working at the intersection of global affairs, religion, and human rights. Over 20 years of government service, he's worked at the State Department and two different U.S. government foreign policy commissions. Most recently, Knox served in both the Obama and Trump administrations as the special advisor for religious minorities. He was the first to serve in this special envoy role, and he received a civil service appointment in September 2015 to lead State Department efforts to address the situation of religious minorities in specialized regions. Back in 2020, Knox left government to embark on a book writing project based on his experiences and joined the Institute for Global Engagement as a senior fellow. He's also a visiting expert at the U.S. Institute of Peace, thanks to the support of the Templeton Religion Trust. He's an ordained deacon, so we can call him Brother Knox, and he and his family currently attend Holy Trinity Church in Northern Virginia. Knox, it is an awesome privilege to have you join us today. Um, I want you to share a little bit about your journey into human rights and how your faith intersects with your burden for those on the margins. Where did all of this start for you? It started at home. I uh, grew up in small town Kentucky, the son of two teachers. And so very early on, I, uh, they modeled you know, community service, uh, sort of lowercase m ministry, um, my mother started an AmeriCorps project to reach out to probable dropout students in Appalachia. So it was it was mm-hmm. something that I saw early on, and it was a Christian household. So um, you know, church was a big part of our lives. Uh, as you could tell by my name, we started out Presbyterian. I was christened at birth and confirmed, but then uh, to go to a better youth group, we went to the Southern Baptist Church, literally next door. And uh, so I've been, you know, came to know the Lord and was baptized there. So I've got all the bases covered for Christianity. I always like to joke. <laughs> um, but, you know, with that, that environment, uh, you know, Kentucky in the 80s was a very homogenous area. I look, I look back at census data and it was the second whitest state in the country next mm-hmm. to New Hampshire. It was like 90% white. So there just wasn't diversity. But my parents, it's because we were in a university town, you know, made sure that we you know, had dinner with the uh, Iranian professor or the Korean professor that we knew the African-American students that the, the we had Jewish friends. Um, and I think that helped open up my eyes to a broader world. Um, and then after college, I moved down to Atlanta uh, to work at World Relief's office there to, to do refugee resettlement uh, in an AmeriCorps hmm. program. And there, for the first time, I, I really got to know people who had been persecuted for the most personal reasons, because they believed the wrong thing or were from the wrong ethnicity or tribe, and it just suffered unimaginable cruelty. Hmm. Um, and it 
and it sort it struck a chord that this is a space where Christians need to be. Christians, you know, if we are known by our love, should be there with the suffering, tending to their needs, helping them overcome, and advocating for their rights. Um, I also uh, met my wife uh, doing refugee resettlement in Atlanta. We had a little office romance. So we always like to joke that uh, <laughs> human rights work can be very romantic. And uh, <laughs> and then wanting to equip myself um, better to consider law school and was very fortunate to come up to D.C. to attend American University, which has a fantastic international law program. Um and, you know, we were just going to be here for a few years and then 25 years later and two kids, um, I've, I've made a career out of focusing on religious freedom and advocating for the persecuted in a variety of different government jobs. Hmm. So you're when you say freedom of religious belief, um, help our audience understand that you're not just talking about uh, Christians being able to worship, um, although Christians are one of the largest persecuted minorities in the world. Um, I think one of the statistics says uh, 75% of the world's Christians, like we're the 25%, right? So it's, it's a significant portion of the population. But you're actually advocating for freedom of religious belief for all people, right, as a human right. rights advocate. Right. So I know some people struggle with the concept of, you know, oh, or we're promoting other religions that are antithetical to the gospel. You know, why should I as a believer in Christ as the only way? to eternal life, fight for a Muslim's rights to build a mosque or a Buddhist to make adherence to Buddhism. Um, can you help the, you know, just the, the average Joe who's thinking through yeah. those things think through yeah. that? No, those are great questions. And, you know, I started a, at a fundamental level that, you know, we believe that everybody is made in God's image. And so every individual is instilled with a certain dignity that they are free to you know, follow their conscience that God gave us. Um, and with that, we know that persecution on account of what people believe is is at pandemic levels globally. Mm -hmm. There's a pandemic of persecution occurring around the world. Mm -hmm. The Pew Forum's done some really interesting work charting two different trends. One is the, the rise in global religiosity. So they found that something like 85% of the global community believes in God or a higher power. That's an astounding figure. Um, and then they have another uh, review that looks at global persecution trends. And they found that almost two out of every three people on earth live in countries where there are severe limitations on the ability to pursue truth, to practice their faith. And you over the, overlay those together, and that's a recipe for instability and human rights mm -hmm. violations. Mm -hmm. And like you said, Christians are often at that nexus point where... There are millions, if not billions, of faithful brothers and sisters trying to practice this faith in dire circumstances and in conditions that, you know, thank God, we don't experience here in, in the United States. Um, and we need to be speaking up for them. The church needs to be doing more to advocate for uh, our fellow believers who are being persecuted for following Jesus. Um, at the same time, we know that there is a community of suffering, that when Christians are persecuted, almost by definition, others are also being persecuted. Mm. And so I think it's it's right. It's 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 the role that Christians should be playing is to advocate for all who are being repressed for following their conscience. Mm -hmm. and, and for me, it comes out of a, you know, biblical uh, 
biblical commands. Um, for your listeners can't see it, but over my shoulder here, I've got Micah six eight hanging on our wall, and act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's a that's a command that crosses all communities across time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also, I've all I think more more personally for me, it's been the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke ten. That's really guided how I've done this work. You know, remember the story of a a lawyer who tries to stump Jesus and. You know, we were talking about how we, we, we're around a lot of lawyers and yes. it's, you, you, no one's surprised that a lawyer thinks they can stump the son of God, right? right. So he very proudly stands up and says, you know, what does it take to have eternal life? And so Jesus turns the question back to him and what, well, what does the Bible say? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, you've answered rightly. And then the lawyer wants to go one more and asks, you know, who is my neighbor? I'm like, ha, gotcha. And that's when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Hmm. And we all know it. There is a traveler uh, who was beset upon by robbers and left for dead. Two other people from his community passed by on the other side. And the hero of the story was a Samaritan. Now, for the listeners of the day, that was a huge twist. That was a gigantic twist because the Samaritans were hated by Jews. They were considered ethnically and religiously different. Um, you'll recall when Jesus meets the woman at the well, the disciples were asking him like, well, why are you going there? We, we should walk around Samaria. They didn't even want to go through it. That was how strong the disdain was for Samaritans. And so for Jesus, having a Samaritan be the hero was like a really got the audience's attention. Mm. But I think there's an important message there that um, the hero reached across religious and ethnic lines to meet someone who was suffering. Mm. Um, It didn't matter that the person was Jewish and the hero was Samaritan. It was this sort of subtle other dimension to the story, not just to go help people who are suffering, but help people who are not even in your community. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And and I like to think about this as this is heroic love of neighbor. It's really easy to love people that think like you, look like mm. you, believe like you. But this is asking us to go a step further to to think about who is our neighbor that's suffering that is in a different community from a different background. Um, and I like to jokingly say, you know, the Jesus had the Samaritan stop what he was doing. He he got off he got off his donkey and he and he helped the person who is suffering. And so we're called to get off our donkeys <laughs> and help people who are suffering. Um, right. And I think, and what a beautiful way to demonstrate God's love to people who are not in our community, who mm-hmm. don't know Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know, they're, they're being tortured. They're, the families are being killed. And mm-hmm. Christians should be the first ones to come up there and advocate for them. Mm-hmm. We should be known for like re- defending anybody who's being abused for any reason. Um, And what a wonderful testimony that would Mm -hmm, be. mm -hmm. And so this other question of like, well, should there be mosques or, you know, other temples, you know, it'd be completely inappropriate for the government to come in and decide who should build what, Um, you know, living here in Virginia, colonial Virginia was an Anglican colony. And so it was my fellow Baptists who were, uh, you know, persecuted for not unwilling to pay the tax to uh, for Anglican clergy. And that's why Thomas Jefferson wrote the Virginia statute for religious freedom. And so, 
you know, government doesn't need to be deciding truth because that gets to be a really slippery slope really mm-hmm. quickly. Mm-hmm. And then just very practically, you know, when I'm pressing Saudi Arabia in my when I was in government to open a church, mm-hmm. if it it's really helpful to point to like, well, the Muslims and American Muslims, they have mosques. Mm-hmm. You know, we're a historically Christian country, but people mm-hmm. of other faith can also practice their beliefs. And mm-hmm. we want this. We're asking you to do the same for the million Christians in Saudi Arabia. Right. Um, so there's a practical element to it as well. Um, but at the core, I think it's just we're we're told to go defend the oppressed Um to plead for the widow, to advocate for those in jail. Hmm. And th- it's not limited to being a Christian or not. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Uh, you know, the Samaritan, what you're saying he's he's done is humanity became ultimate, not community identity. Um, and that's that's right. a great, that's a great dimension to that story. I appreciate you bringing that out. So let's talk for a second about um, one of the things we study in our course is hi- recurring historical themes and patterns of oppression. Um, you know, Satan's only got a, he's got a handful of tricks, right? And he's just, he's just to exploit people. He's just really good at marketing, right? He changes it up every, every era, right? Um, in, in our course, we, I, I have my students read uh, the works of political scientist Ralph Bunch. Um, African-American yeah. fellow, a yeah. political scientist, um, was the first African-American to win the Nobel Prize for uh, brokering temporary peace in the Middle East and wrote quite a bit about um, both local, because he was, uh, this is mid-20th century, he's talking about um, Jim Crow and the fruits of, you know, of uh, African-Americans now almost one, two generations removed from, you know, slavery. Um, and he's writing in that context, but he's taking those patterns of oppression and showing them around the world as totalitarian regimes are rising um, in African nations. The you know the, the um, uh, British Empire is you know falling. Blah blah blah. And my students are usually struck by how many of the issues Bunch was writing about that were pressing in his day in the mid 20th century are actually still relevant today. I personally don't think this speaks as much to the prevalence of racism or necessarily white supremacy as much as it speaks to the pervasiveness of evil in the human heart. Mm. Um, mm. We always need somehow to regulate our lust for dominance over others. That's That's been our issue since Cain and Abel, right? White supremacy, Jim Crow, racism. These are symptoms and manifestations of that lust for dominance. And there are many other manifestations historically and globally. So let me get your thoughts on the current narrative that sort of limits the root cause of most of our civil and human rights uh, issues uh, as an issue of white supremacy. Yeah, as someone who's you know worked exclusively on human rights outside the United States and have traveled a lot in the Middle East and Europe and South and Central Asia, you know, racism is a is a plague on humanity like mm-hmm. you, you encounter it everywhere it's uh it's not just white americans who have a problem with racism it's it's everywhere it's it's fear of the other someone mm. who looks different than you believes different than you and so much of the problems that we see around the world come down to that like i just hate you because you're different mm-hmm. or i'm afraid of you because you're different so it is a, a condition of the human heart. I think it goes back to the the fallen world that we live in. Um, but I've, um, you know, Ralph Bunch 
he's uh, they've named the State Department's library after That's him, right. which mm -hmm. I thought was a very appropriate honor for someone who is such an intellectual thought leader in the civil rights movement, you know, attended the March on Washington, walked with Dr. Martin Luther King from Selma. Um, and I think I've been reading as we've had this moment of racial uh, reconciliation or a racial reckoning is really mm -hmm. the right word mm -hmm. um, over the last two years. You know, as a white man born in Alabama, grew up in Kentucky, you know, trying to understand the situation of our, my black brothers and sisters who, who have, are suffering. And, you know, I, I've started reading Frederick Douglass, which was never mm -hmm. assigned reading for me. And I was mm -hmm. a history major. Mm. Uh, why was that not part of the curriculum? Um, come I take just our read... course. No, come take our courses yeah, at the yeah, end, yeah. Mr. Z. No, I'm joking. <laughs> As if you need them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, this is, but I think there is there is sort of a knowledge gap mm -hmm. um, that mm -hmm. I, in my education about the experience of African-Americans, you know, mm -hmm. it sort of ends at the Civil War and it picks up mm -hmm. at the March on Washington. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I had never heard of Juneteenth till last year. Oh my! I had I had never heard of the Tulsa massacre until mm. this year. Oh my! And I studied history and American studies. Like, why was I not getting this? Mm -hmm. um, and and so in the past twelve months, I read Martin Luther King's last book, "Where Do We Go From Here," that he wrote in nineteen sixty eight, right mm -hmm. before he was killed. And similar to what you said about Ralph Bunch's writings, the issues that he was talking about are still issues today, like issues of housing of access to jobs and good education for our African-American African-Americans. And that's, that's, that's a problem that mm -hmm. is not good. And I think it goes to some of the bigger issues that we're sorting through and hope I'm hoping and praying that we can find a way to talk about these things that is constructive and not destructive mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. brings all Americans together and not, you know, divides us into smaller and smaller groups. When we, our family went to see the African American History Museum last year, which is so well done. Mm -hmm. um, and I was really struck at the end of the museum that said, you know, African American history is American history. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that is absolutely right. Like the African American experience is unique and it needs to be understood in all its uniqueness. Um, but it's also our history, it's my history. And, um, I think how we deal with the issues of racism and white supremacy, which are real. And, you know, I certainly experienced it, heard it growing up. Mm -hmm. um, and we're seeing the manifestation still today. We got to buckle down and deal with it. Um, but I think the starting point for Christians is, you know, we're all sinners who fall short of the holiness of God. And but for Jesus, mm -hmm. we would never meet it. And so how do we as Christians go back to the teachings of Jesus, go back to the examples of, him as a peacemaker, as someone who turned the other cheek, who walked the extra mile, um, when we're having these really difficult discussions that are incredibly sensitive, and most of us don't really even know how to begin to have them, but we've got to we've got to try. Hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, there are a speaking of how we frame ourselves um, in the conversation, all of us entering into that conversation, how we frame ourselves as either oppressed or oppressor or persecuted uh, is, is really important. Uh, there are a couple of cases in Canada that, are, uh, that have recently been framed by some Christians as issues of freedom of assembly on the one hand and outright persecution on the other. Um, 
I think that might be an overstatement of the case, but I feel we could use some balance and wisdom in looking at those cases. The, the, the issues surround the right to worship and assemble uh, and the local government's restrictions during the COVID lockdowns. At least two pastors that I know of were arrested and jailed. Some people say imprisoned, which is a bit erroneous because a prison uh, presumes a sentence, right? Uh, a sentence and a conviction. So these, these right. pastors have been jailed um, for violating the government's health guidelines. How do you, as a person who's deeply familiar with global religious persecution, how are you helping people understand what's happening to these Canadian brothers and what that means for the, the church in the West? Yeah. The, the way I've addressed it is to provide context for the global situation for persecution. So back in October, November, there was a lot of talk I saw in my you know Facebook friends posting and just mm-hmm. on Twitter, you know, for all it's worth. But a lot of American Christians saying, oh, these church closures for COVID, this is persecution. The American church is being persecuted. And having worked with the persecuted church, that's just not right. That's not the right way to describe it. And I was very fortunate to have Christianity Today run an article I wrote where Mm -hmm. I trying to, in a relational way, explain to our fellow American Christians that, yeah, these COVID closures are certainly inconvenient. They're troubling. They're disheartening. Our church was closed, um, but we shouldn't call them persecution. You know, Mm -hmm. persecution is is violent it's it's murder it's torture it's there's motivated by a specific animus against an individual's belief and the third component is there's no recourse for the wrong Mm. you know so you know if you want to talk about church closures that are persecution look at the former soviet union where Mm -hmm. swat teams go in arrest everybody and then bulldoze the church Mm -hmm. that's persecution you know, you look what's happening in India towards, you know, Christians right. there where the Hindu mobs go in, beat up the pastor, beat up the pastor's wife and kids and the police just stand by and watch. Mm-hmm. That's persecution. You look at what's happening to the Uyghur Muslims where mm-hmm. the Chinese are putting them in literal concentration camps and mm-hmm. slave labor camps. Mm-hmm. That's persecution. And I'm not diminishing the, the challenges that and I'm not saying that all of the closures were completely justifiable. I think there were some states that went too far, mm-hmm. but this is where we have the court system. This is where we have our elected officials who are very willing to speak up. And the Supreme Court has been very strongly in favor of a sort of an expansive understanding of religious liberty domestically. So I don't know the Canadian cases specifically, but um, I think generally we have to be mindful of just the broader context in which the church exists and and be careful about how we use language Mm -hmm. and understand that if we call everything persecution, then nothing is. Mm -hmm. And you lose your credibility. Um, Yeah. You can say it's illegal and we're going to sue you in court. Great. That's why they're there. That's that's the part of the blessings we have. We have that recourse. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And so use it and people do. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) But we just, I think some perspective is what is what's needed. And so at the same time though, there is, um, there is a, a cultural shift that we're experiencing. So we don't want to call it, and I, and I always say this when I lecture, I do not call anything that we're experiencing here in America uh, persecution. 
you know, there's there's right. there's a there's yeah. a spectrum here, right? Yeah. 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 However, um, there is a rise, a cultural rise in hostility towards biblical Christianity that's different. You know, this isn't your daddy's this isn't your daddy's Christian era, you know, anymore. This is this is very it's a very different world than it was even twenty years ago. Um, and some of that is undeserved and some of it is deserved. You know, the church has made yeah. some serious errors. Yeah. Um, as, as she has in every era uh, yep. in history, in every place. So let's talk about, um, you know, the rise in anti-Christian hostility and uh, how we should think about the particular case of Masterpiece Bakery, which is Jack Phillips, and freedom of conscience. What should we be seeing or focusing on in that case that would be helpful? Can you bring a little bit more light than heat to that conversation for us? You know, I, I kind of, I, this is one where I see both sides of it. Like on one level, I, I think our legal order should provide the right for people to say, you know, I'm not going to be forced to do something that violates my conscience, you know, like to have an African-American baker make a KKK cake, you know, that would be unfathomable. We wouldn't want to force that on them. Um, at the same time, I think, you know, if, if it's, you know, loving your enemies. I don't want to say he views those, the people from the LGBT community who have asked for a certain cake as his enemies, but in that context of, um, go, you know, giving your coat, going the extra mile, should he just bake the cake um, as a way to, as, a, as an expression of that lesson that Jesus gives us. Um, but it's, it's, it's very, I think I always go back to, again, in my work, it's been at this sort of life and death level. Mm -hmm, and so mm -hmm. looking at the the cake baker situation, this is sort of a, a microaggression versus a massacre. Like that's kind mm -hmm. of the spectrum. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've, I've often thought, man, I pray for the day when Pakistan is debating the nuances of religious mm -hmm. liberty law, mm -hmm. not whether, you know, should this girl be forcibly converted and married off to a Muslim man, yeah. you know, spiritually and physically raped. Right. Um, and so again, it's, I, I don't have a, I've never really focused in my career on the domestic work mm -hmm. because I think it, we have such great religious liberties. Yeah. Um, a bad day in America for religious liberty beats anywhere else in the world. Right. I right. mean, yeah. and that's not to say this isn't an important discussion. It is. And, mm -hmm. And we need to figure this out. And I think the Supreme Court case in this sort of new way that they're dealing with it is just to say, everyone needs to learn to live together. Like we have an increasingly diverse society with mm -hmm. different viewpoints. And if we keep, if everything has to go to the Supreme Court, we're, our, our union is going to further fracture. And so, you know, what, what does grace look like for both sides of that question? Mm. Um, mm. And I think that's the, the, the attitude we ought to bring to these types of situations. That is an important phrase there. What does grace look like for both sides of the equation? That's that's civil society, right? Um, yeah, civil society. I'm, I'm really hoping that we can get back to that point of uh, extending grace from both sides. Um, let's see, you mentioned uh, just a little bit ago about the Uyghur population. That's an enormous uh, human rights abuse issue. It's the probably, the, some say it's the largest since World War II, since the uh, internment of the Jews during the Holocaust. It is right. a massive problem. And it's also a massive problem because of uh, the fact that we here in the freer world in the West are actually the end users of a lot of that those Absolutely. products made with slave yep. labor. That's usually my in 
with talking with people about saying, well, let's let's talk about how what happens here matters there and vice versa. Is And this has been a case that's been going on for quite some time, but it's just being, it's begun, I'd say, in the last year to be more exposed to the public. Is there yeah. any, are there any glimmers of hope or movement in that situation for this population of people that are um, now interred because of, they are an, under the sinicization of China, they are an ethnic, both an ethnic and religious minority determined to be insufficiently Chinese. Right. And so they no, must, the, they're, they're a threat to national security. You know, it's always dangerous to draw direct parallels to the Holocaust, but this is sure taking on some ominous signs when you have a government singling out a community because they're a different religion, a different race, and then forcing them into re-education camps, into concentration camps, into slave labor camps, separating them from their children, refusing them to practice their faith. I mean, this is deeply troubling. This is something we did not expect to see in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. We thought this was history, but it's it's not. It's reality for up to 10 million Turkic Muslims in the province of Xinjiang in Western China. So the situation there is bleak. It's not hopeful. I think the areas where I've taken some hope is just how the United States is responding, both at governmental level and civil society. So governmental, um, Secretary Pompeo, before he left, labeled it a genocide. Mm -hmm. That's the strongest language you can use. Right. And then when Secretary Blinken came in, he agreed. And mm -hmm. so, you know, there are not many points of commonality between the Trump and Biden administrations. But for this one, that to be, they be in agreement is a powerful statement. And we've seen the use of the different levers of American statecraft to try to coerce China to change its ways. We're sanctioning officials down at the provincial level. We're starting to have supply chain accountability. There was just an article in the Washington Post yesterday about how a lot of the um, solar cells for solar power are being made in Xinjiang. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and so we've got to start tracking the supply chain to, mm -hmm. to ensure that we're not benefiting from slave labor and we're not giving resources to the enslaver. Mm -hmm. um, and the other encouraging thing is civil society. The Southern Baptist Convention in Nashville, is this, they passed a resolution specifically calling it a genocide against Uyghur Muslims. Mm -hmm. And as someone who's worked in the international space for a long time, you don't see a lot of cross-faith advocacy. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's something that's you, you're, it's starting to grow, and I think that's a good thing, where, of course, you advocate for your own, but to also advocate for the other. Mm -hmm. And so to have the Southern Baptist Convention issue a resolution on behalf of Uyghur Muslims calling that their human rights be respected, that their religious freedoms be respected, that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And it, with all the other stuff going on at the convention, it was completely overlooked. But that's a story that, uh, you know, I hope your your classes will, will read because it's a great document kind of outlining the biblical case for human rights advocacy, mm -hmm. uh, citing mm -hmm. many of the same scriptures that I had mentioned earlier. Um, so that's hopeful. Um, but at the end of the day, we're, we as a country are really going to have to decide how much do we value our values. Mm -hmm. um, the days of easy naming and shaming are, with China are over. Mm -hmm. um, it's, they're going to push back. You know, they're issuing sanctions on American officials who speak out about this. They're mm -hmm. threatening other countries right. into silence. Mm -hmm. um, and they're 
they're pushing back. And mm-hmm. if we're going to stay true to our ideals, we're going to stay true to sort of the founding notions of our country, it's not going to be easy, but I think it's right. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's where I want, that's where I'm encouraged to see how we, across two administrations now, we are taking a very strong stand mm. against this communist persecuting regime. That's the benefit of being a Daniel in the White House administration, right? You know, you 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 get to see you get to span different administrations and right, notice exactly. the. Uh, I mean, we need more Daniels, really. You know, in those positions, um, yeah. Amen. people that can outlast. Uh, you know, from administration to administration. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you've seen this documentary called "Coded Bias." It is. Uh, it discusses. Um, uh, China's increased use of facial recognition and uh, brings us into how many in the West are beginning to use, um, you know, surveillance techniques um, uh, increasingly. And I'm wondering, uh, they, they, they take you from China, they take you, uh, you know, into um, certain places in um, uh, urban neighborhoods where they're using facial recognition and surveillance in um, mm. housing projects. Yeah. It's a wonderful uh, research done by an African-American woman, a researcher from um, MIT. And mm. uh, it's it's really compelling. It raises the question of at what point do we here in the freer world begin to uh, um, make note of and deal with the fact that you know our governments, our local and state governments, are using this same technology as a communist. You know, and here we are, a constitutional republic, and you know, they're, we're using the same technology. Yeah. How how invasive is that? You know, how at what point do we start to wonder about our own um, freedom to assemble, freedom to privacy, uh, right to privacy, and those those sorts of issues? I think this issue of privacy is the next frontier in the human rights debate. And I just think about, you know, there's an Alexa right behind me. We've got five Alexas in our house. Yeah, I don't have Alexa in my house. (laughs) But this idea that like I've I've let in a corporation to monitor everything we're talking about. Yep. And you know, people have the the nest with the cameras and we're we've sort of like because of the convenience and it is handy, Mm -hmm. um, we've let it all in. And Mm -hmm. of course Mm -hmm. this isn't the same thing as like the way China is using it to control and suppress, mm-hmm. um, but it does open up these sort of unparalleled questions of privacy and control, and and the the potential for abuse is so right. Right, that's what they're arguing in coded bias is if you don't set yeah. up guardrails, you know, our our human nature is to exploit these things in unhealthy ways. Yeah. And, and this is where technology has so outpaced the law mm-hmm. like this. You know, we're 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 using kind of analog law in this hyper digital <laughs> age and um, we've got to catch up. And mm. this is goes beyond. I'm not a techie. I, I know how to use my iPhone. That's about the extent of my <laughs> my technology, techno savvy. And then I've got children so that help me out. Um, right, right, right. But we've got to start putting up these guardrails, you know, to have facial recognition technology used as a way to follow people is, is dystopian Orwellian. Mm-hmm. Um, and we may be kind of welcoming it into our household. So mm-hmm. we, I think it's something further thought is needed. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Uh, one of the points that they bring out in coded bias is that with most uh, technological advances, it starts with the, um, the uh, wealthier classes and trickles down 
to access for the, uh, the, the less wealthy. And oh. this technology, particularly with facial recognition, has flipped that. And it's starting at, at from the, from, um, for example, surveillance in, in uh, hard-pressed communities, um, you know, using facial recognition to access buildings, yeah. you know, and, yeah. and, and to monitor yeah. tenant behavior. And so it's, yeah. it's flipped and it's starting from the bottom up because um, these will be the folks that will have less tendency to uh, argue for their rights, know their mm-hmm. rights and yeah. say, hey, wait a minute, um, I have a right to come and go. And not be not be monitored, right. you know. So it's interesting. It's going to be an interesting conversation. I'm, I'm glad you're there in it. Uh, uh, well, let me ask you this: um, Who should we read besides Knox Thames? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> because we do read your materials in my course. Who should the average Joe read to get a preliminary understanding of human rights and the right to dignity for all people, particularly from a Christian perspective? Because there is a lot yeah. from secular humanist perspective. Yeah. Three books. Uh, I would start with Marianne Glendon's book, A World Made New. Mm-hmm. Uh, Marianne Glendon's a law professor at Harvard, and she did this wonderful retelling of Eleanor Roosevelt's leadership in drafting the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Terrific. And it gives you that sort of foundation of international law and how Mrs. Roosevelt did this really masterful job to bring in all these different perspectives from different cultural ideas, religious ideas, legal yeah. ideas to come up with this foundational document. So that's that's a good baseline. I think also focusing on Christian perspective, Gary Haugen's Good News About Injustice. Um, my wife worked for him for 17 years at mm-hmm. IJM. At yeah, IJM, He's been such sure. a thought leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. such a thought leader, almost a prophet really, to to give Christians the, uh, the lexicon, the the terminology, the mindset to be advocates for the oppressed. IJM's been very good about you know trafficking in persons, but I think right. the principles apply broader. And IJM and is at, International Justice Mission, for those who don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the last book that came to mind was by Brother Andrew, mm-hmm. the great uh, evangelist mm-hmm. and religious freedom advocate. His book, Light Force, yes. where he talks about going into the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. And uh, working with you know Palestinian Christians and meeting the leaders of Hamas and Hezbollah and giving them Bibles, so mm-hmm. I, I think you sort of see the application of uh, a demonstration of Christian love in a Muslim majority context um, and how to deal with the persecuted church. So yeah, those are three I would recommend. Terrific. Uh, I I met Brother Andrew um, backstage at a a mission conference. And, you know, of course, he's this towering figure, you know, God smuggler and uh, smuggling Bibles behind the Iron Curtain. And, you know, and there he is just standing there with his hands in his pocket. I'm like, (laughs) hi, Brother Andrew. (laughs) He's like, hello. (laughs) It's just a just a regular warm guy. But, yeah, his his uh, his pioneering thinking is huge. Uh, So thanks. Thanks for those three resources. What um, just to wrap up, what do you think specifically Christians can bring to the human rights conversation, the broad conversation that's unique to a biblical worldview? A sacrificial love for all. So a demonstrated willingness to go to hard places to advocate for their oppressed, both our own and others. Um. Very few communities speak up for groups outside of their own. Mm. 
Hmm. And I think it's incumbent upon Christians just to live out our belief in the inherent dignity of every person to go and do likewise, as Jesus taught us, um, to show God's love that we should be the first people advocating for soul freedom, uh, even if communities go in a different direction. Hmm. Uh, I think that's going to be the best expression of the sort of core tenets of the Christian faith. And I think it's one where we also need to think about how do we marshal the, all the different components of the church to do this. Um, you know, I've been thinking about how do we involve the black church in the work of international religious freedom? Mm-hmm. You know, our African-American brothers and sisters have, they, they know what discrimination looks like. Yep. They know what repression looks like mm-hmm. and they know how to overcome it. Mm-hmm. And I think there'd, there'd be such a powerful testimony and experience that is just missing in our efforts. Like Mm -hmm. because they've got a lot to worry about here, it's understandable they don't look abroad, but how do we bring them into the work of international religious freedom? Because I think that's, they're prayerful, they're devout, they they get it in a way that a lot of others in the space don't Mm -hmm. just because of the lived experience. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that's an area that we need to work on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then also being mindful of, our the persecuted church like mm-hmm. i think we we don't do enough we we don't remember them like we should and uh because we're so focused on our own much smaller battles here i've often thought boy if we could get 10 a tenth of the resources that are spent on supreme court litigation <laughs> into the international work that would mm. be a game changer mm. and um you know what would that look like is is a question i think we all need to consider Terrific. Knox Thames, God bless your work. I'm so glad that you you have been strategically positioned exactly where you are with the knowledge that God has given you and the experiences he's given you. And I appreciate you coming on and talking uh, with us about these things to the extent that the Edmiston Center can continue to involve um, uh, the unlikely <laughs> the unlikely advocates, uh, the people from the African-American community connecting the local and the global. We're doing our best. <laughs> we really are Great. to train folks um, to see the lo- the connections between the local and the global from a biblical worldview. Mm. Thanks so much mm. for being with us today. This no, has Thank been- you for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. This has been Walking Forward, the podcast of the Edmiston Center, which is sponsored by Reform Theological Seminary in Atlanta. If you'd like to come and visit us, if you'd like to register for classes, uh, we would love to have you. You can contact Mr. Pasquale Thedford, the Director of Admissions. He'll give you all sorts of directions on how to do those things. And we will look forward to seeing you with another episode of Walking Forward as we continue to walk forward together on our knees. Keep it moving on.